Hey, listeners, a quick word before we start the show. It is Canary Media's birthday. That's right. Canary Media and Postscript Media are partners on these podcasts. They're turning one this week, and to celebrate, they're having a party, a donation party, and we're asking each of you to bring a gift. If you don't already know, Canary is a nonprofit news organization. Part of their funding comes from listeners like you, and your financial support ensures Canary's newsroom continues to cover the solutions to the global climate crisis, and it ensures podcasts like The Carbon Copy and Cat have a home. So please take a minute to go to www.canarymedia.com and click on the donation button today. We've got a link right there at the top of the show notes. Be part of the solution to the climate crisis and sustain fact-based reporting on the energy transition, because if not now, then when? And happy birthday, Canary Media. Let's make sure there's many more. Thanks. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Most of us are not financial experts, but we understand financial risk. The risk to take out a mortgage, a car loan, or a student loan. The risk of investing in the stock market. Or for those of us who lost money during the 2008 financial crisis, the risk and impact of banks making stupid lending decisions. Today, there's a $4 trillion risk hanging over the global financial sector. Climate risk. That's how much capital in the financial system is tied to infrastructure, property, loans, and other goods and services that are threatened by an overheating planet. And the world's biggest investors and financial regulators are finally waking up to it. This awakening, if you want to call it that, hasn't happened overnight. It's been a long evolution. One of the first macro-scale warnings came in 2006. That's when Lord Nicholas Stern, a British economist, wrote a 700-page report outlining how the global economy could lose trillions in GDP every year under a 2 degrees Celsius warming scenario. That's a path we are very much on track to hit. In the decade or so after that report, we saw a wide range of insurers, banks, and big corporates adopt some of that language around economic and financial risk. And many thought there would be this big boom in carbon transparency. Everybody would be tracking and disclosing and managing their emissions. Instead, we got a lot of corporate sustainability reports written by consultants at McKinsey and Deloitte, but no clear standard for how to assess and manage the risk. Fast forward to 2015. A guy named Mark Carney takes the stage at a formal dinner for bankers and insurance industry professionals in London. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce Mark. He is widely regarded, and deservedly so, as one of the outstanding central bank governors of his generation. For seven years, Carney served as the governor of the Bank of England. In a video of the speech, he looks a bit like a young Tom Brokaw. Tall, confident, good hair. I'm going to give you a speech without a joke, I'm afraid. When he steps up to the podium in his tuxedo, you half expect him to tear open an envelope and announce the winner for Best Feature Film. But instead, Carney spends the next 25 minutes talking about the risks of climate change on the insurance industry, on financial stability, and on the economy. Kathleen Brophy wasn't in the room, but she remembers the impact. As the governor of the Central Bank of England, he gave this very prolific speech about the tragedy on the horizon, as he called it, of climate-related financial risk. Because alongside major technological, demographic, and political shifts, our very world is changing with profound implications for insurers, for financial stability, and for the economy. Talking about climate change as a market failure, really centralizing the role of financial markets in contributing to climate change and therefore needing to um, adapt to mitigate climate change. So that was a very important moment for the financial regulatory world. In other words, once climate 
change becomes a defining issue for financial stability, it may already be too late. This speech marked the origins of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, known as TCFD. It eventually brought together hundreds of companies representing $9 trillion in assets, and they committed to a set of guidelines on how to divulge climate risk to investors. Up until this point, there were other similar voluntary frameworks. But TCFD brought together government officials and private companies from across the G20 and created momentum for real regulatory change, including this month in the U.S. So TCFD was was a very important moment that began to um, draw more attention from the financial sector, from financial regulators all around the world, and really put the financial sector on the map when it comes to addressing climate change and is now finally being codified into mandatory regulations by um, different countries and jurisdictions around the world. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a historic proposal from America's top financial regulator is mandating corporate climate transparency, the kind of transparency that many have been demanding for years. So what are the new climate rules, and how do they build on the calls for corporate accountability? Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. If you're running a public company, you have a legal obligation to report a lot of specific information. Financial performance, audits, salaries, contracts, real estate agreements, business conflicts, competitive market positions, and competitive risks. One thing you're not required to mention in corporate America climate risk. But that is about to change. In mid-March, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the top financial cop in the U.S., voted to make climate part of its beat. In a statement, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler said this would provide investors with consistent, comparable, and decision-useful information for making their investment decisions and would provide consistent and clear reporting obligations for issuers. What exactly is climate risk? It's a broad category, and many companies are still trying to figure out how to define it. It includes the basics, like how much heat-trapping gases are you emitting, how are you tracking your emissions cuts. It can also include physical supply chain risk from extreme weather, the risk to asset valuation due to climate regulation or market shifts, or liability, like a risk of a climate-related lawsuit. Now, companies would have to disclose their climate-related risks and how those risks would impact the business strategy and outlook. 
Yeah, so this would be a pretty big deal. So with this rule and with, and with the adoption of a final rule, investors will finally have a way to evaluate companies' financial resilience in the face of climate change to determine whether investment in a certain company is risky or not. Basically, many economists around the world have called climate change the biggest market failure of our time. This rule is a hugely important step in correcting this market failure. It's a big deal and it's a big job. To understand how this rule came into existence and what it means for public companies, we turn to someone who's been focused on corporate climate transparency for years. Um, my name is Kathleen Brophy, um, and I'm a senior strategist at the Sunrise Project uh, with a focus on U.S. climate-related financial regulation. With this latest move of the SEC, it didn't come out of nowhere. It builds on years of work around this issue. Where does this story around climate disclosure start in your mind? This is absolutely not coming out of nowhere. I, I mean, it began two decades ago. So we had the Carbon Disclosure Project that was one of the first um, initiatives on disclosure related to climate change. And ever since then, it's kind of, it, it's been, you know, every year we get we get any number of, of new initiatives trying to tackle this problem. The task force on climate-related disclosures, financial disclosures, which we call TCFD, uh, TCFD was started in 2015. It was an initiative that was led by Mark Carney, who is the former governor of the Central Bank um, of, of England, Michael Bloomberg. It's basically, uh, it, it was a lot of financial industry leaders and also kind of global leaders in, in financial regulation to create standards for climate disclosures by banks, investors, asset managers, and insurers. So TCFD was, was a very important moment in the rollout of many other initiatives, and it is now kind of the baseline. So we now have a broad movement around what it's going to take to transition the markets away from carbon-intensive industries um, and the regulations that will, that will be required. So it's been a long time coming. Many countries have been supportive of these efforts. So in, we've had new regulations crop up in many major financial markets, including the UK, the EU, and Japan, are some of the most important um, that have really come to the table and stepped up in terms of formally regulating and requiring these disclosures. But the U.S. hung back. Yes. We did begin to make important progress on this issue under the Obama administration. So the EPA began requiring greenhouse gas emissions disclosure for certain carbon-intensive industries. That was in 2009. The SEC actually put out its first-ever guidance on climate-related disclosure in 2010. However, a lot of the climate-related disclosure progress did gain momentum in, in the last five years. And unfortunately, the U.S. sat out during that time. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? So under the previous administration, regulations, including disclosure regulations, were the subject of constant attack. Um, even from the very individuals that were leading a given regulatory agency. So needless to say, we did not make much federal progress in this area from 2016 to 2020. During that time, it's important to note that states did take the lead 
um, and are now continuing to play a big role. So for example, there are now over 15 states requiring certain levels of greenhouse gas emissions disclosure. But at the federal level, we are really trying to play catch up to the rest of the world and make up for lost time. And we're seeing that with the Biden administration. When President Biden takes office, he indicates that disclosure is going to be an important part of his climate agenda, a broad-based focus on the financial sector. And he issues an executive order in May that was fairly sweeping and indicated a pretty expansive approach to addressing climate change in financial markets. What was that executive order? So in May 2021... The Biden administration specifically put out an executive order on climate-related financial risk. So this was after the announcement of the prioritization of climate change for this administration and this whole-of-government approach to addressing climate change. We could have imagined that financial regulators would would play their part in that whole-of-government approach, but the Biden administration did not leave that to chance. They announced this executive order that was specifically on addressing climate-related financial risk through regulation. And very importantly, in that executive order, Biden named this as a task for the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And this is a table of all the financial regulators. This body was actually created after the 2008 financial crisis with the mandate to identify and mitigate future systemic risks that could potentially destabilize the financial system. So basically, basically making sure that 2008 never happens again. This is, a, this is important, and it's important that this was specifically mandated for the Financial Stability Oversight Council because it sets the issue within the framework of systemic financial risk. So this table is led by Janet Yellen, and all the financial regulators with this mandate are now tackling this issue as a body and at each individual agency. So we have this move from the SEC, which is one of the biggest points of progress yet, but we have also gotten movement on this issue at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, at Treasury, and at the Federal Reserve to some extent. So what we're seeing is each of these regulators figuring out what it looks like to address climate change within each of their individual remits in order to be responsive to this executive order. We're going to take a quick break here. Afterward, the proposed SEC rule has support from some of the world's biggest companies. But like everything else on Biden's climate agenda, it's under political and legal threat. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, 
the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week starting in April for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about the reaction. So companies like Apple and Salesforce have come out in favor of action on disclosure. They've already been doing this. There are others that are fighting this on the you know, far end of the spectrum, of course, fossil fuel companies and heavy industrial companies are opposed to this. What are the ranges you're seeing within the corporate world? You're right that there is a lot of corporate support for this rule from major players. And that's really important to remember when associations like the Chamber of Commerce come out and try to present industry opposition as a united front. One reason why you see this difference, uh, this range in terms of company support, if you think about it, is because a lot of companies have made these net zero commitments and they are really trying to adapt their business models. And if you think about it, some companies rely on data within their supply chain from other corporate actors. And so we now have companies who are essentially data users, just like investors are. And so that's why a lot of companies are very supportive because it will help them meet their commitments. In terms of Opposition. Well, Biden's regulatory octopus reaching into the SEC is, of course, waging war on fossil fuels. Investors beware. The SEC is about to hurt stocks and injure the economy. People aren't going to be able to trust the data because it's it's so speculative. And I just hate to see our filings being filled with information that investors can't rely on. Unfortunately, this rule hits at the intersection of two different industry-led efforts. So the rule draws ire from two complementary but distinct groups of opposition. And the first group is the U.S. fossil fuel industry. This is pretty simple. Basically, the same companies that told us climate change is not a problem are telling us that climate-related financial risk is not a problem. And that is because the industry does not want people to reckon with the fact that fossil fuel assets are basically the new subprime mortgages. It's existential for them because some of these disclosures could expose that. But of course, that's exactly the reason why these disclosures are so necessary. The second point of opposition comes from the decades-long industry attack on regulation in general. So this opposition, which has been fueled by Coke Industries and kind of some of these other conservative machines, has systemically attacked and eroded regulatory powers over time on behalf of industries and companies that simply do not want to be regulated. So for those of us who are pushing for a strong rule, these recycled arguments are actually a bit of a gift. We know exactly what reused arguments they will use, and we have a lot of experience debunking them. Could anything derail this legally or politically? There are Republican lawmakers who've come out and criticized the rule, of course. They were they spent months 
attacking this approach and have predictably come out and said, this is the Biden administration not being able to pass climate policy through Congress, so they're circumventing us, and we will try to fight this. You have large corporate actors that you outlined, including the Chamber of Commerce, that have said, we will try to fight this. What does fighting this look like, and are there any vulnerabilities? So I'll start with the political. Despite its global decline, the oil and gas industry is still incredibly powerful in the U.S. government and on the Hill. We just saw that in how the industry used its influence, for instance, to sink Sarah Bloom Raskin's nomination to the Federal Reserve. And it's trying to push its weight on this rule because it's such an an existential threat. And so when it comes to political pathways, if after the midterms, the composition of the majority in the House and Senate changes, we could have the introduction of new appropriations riders. And this is something that has happened in the past. So for instance, there was an appropriations rider introduced several years ago that prohibited the SEC from passing any rule on the disclosure of political contributions from companies, for instance. So that is a a tool that has that has been used and has worked in the past and that we need to prepare for this time around. On the legal side, the oil and gas industry and other industries use legal challenges and have used legal challenges in regards to past SEC rules very successfully. The oil and gas industry does not necessarily have the kind of soft power that they've gained over time at other agencies. Instead, they demonstrate their power by force. They have tortured the rulemaking process, buried rules in multi-decades-long litigation. And unfortunately, due to successful efforts to pack courts with conservative judges, we now have lots of federal courts, including the D.C. Circuit, that consist of an increased number of judges that are hostile to regulation. So litigation will be a primary tool here that the opposition uses to try to obstruct this rule. This story could play out in two very different ways. One would be this historic move for capital markets that would cause companies to think very differently about climate change. And the other would be that this rule faces the political realities that have really hurt a lot of President Biden's proposed historic climate actions. As you're watching the way this story could play out, how are you thinking about those two different realities and how things have played out so far with the Biden administration's climate agenda. You're really hitting the nail on the head in terms of the potentials here um, and some of the things that we're most concerned about. What the SEC is doing is absolutely within its mandate. And so while it's very important, it's also in some ways very pedestrian. I mean, this is this is something the SEC has done in its nine-decade history over and over again. And just because we are now in a moment of inconvenient politics should not stop this agency from doing what it's done since its its inception, which is protect U.S. investors and markets. What can emerge with the Biden administration is an important and effective set of executive and executive branch actions that really do help bring our markets into the 21st century and catch us up with the rest of the world. Kathleen Brophy, thank you so much for walking us through this 
historic and complicated moment. Thanks so much, Stephen. Kathleen Brophy is a senior strategist with the Sunrise Project. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our Postscript producers are Jamie Kaiser, Cecily Mesa-Martinez, Alexandria Herr, Dalvin Abouage, and Daniel Waldorf. Anne Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors. They include advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Go over to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating and review. Hugely important for helping us find new listeners. And if you want to send a link to your friends and colleagues, I know a lot of you out there Uh, know our work from the energy gang and if you have folks out there who used to listen to the energy gang podcast and uh, you want people to know about our new pods send them a link to this show or catalyst with shale Khan, which is our other show we do with canary media thanks for your support thanks for listening i'm stephen lacy and this is the carbon copy